Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 26th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, September 23rd, and once again we have Truthvids here to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part eight of this series of presentations. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Bill. Yeah, great to be back. Uh, we had a little break due to uh, an act of God, <laughs> the hurricane. And um, yeah, I thought we would get up through this a little bit faster, but obviously we only got through two points, but that's no problem. Uh, this is the one I was really looking forward to. I thought we would uh, cover it. I did this big, big intro where I thought we was going to be talking about uh, all the paganism, but uh, we can at least get through it in this podcast, right, Bill? Well, well, right, and I have to apologize for that. I'm just Mr. Digression, I guess. That's, I, I, had, um, I thought we were going to move through these faster, too, and, and failed immediately, and, and I'm sorry to disappoint you last week that we didn't get to point 23, but here we are now. This week, I'm not going to make any predictions, but we will start with point 23. So I, I apologize that you had to wait two weeks to get this far, right? I know you were looking yeah, forward to no it. <laughs> Before beginning, though, I also want to say that in our last presentation, I had made the assertion that before the Israelite conquest of Canaan, the Canaanites were using a cuneiform script for written communications. They weren't using Hebrew to call Hebrew proto-Canaanite or anything like that or associate the Hebrew alphabet with Canaanites is just wrong. And, and this one proof of this is found in the Amarna tablets. These tablets were diplomatic letters from Canaanite kings made to the Egyptian pharaoh. And in many of them, the Canaanites were begging for Egyptian assistance to defend against the invading Habiru, or Abiru, who are who we identify as the Hebrews. Now, there are scholars who contend with that, but the, the contentions are all based on conjecture. The name given these documents, the Amarna tablets, comes from the fact that they were discovered in the ground at a place called Tel El Amarna, the Hill of Amarna, in Middle Egypt. They are written in cuneiform, and, and they are commonly and appropriately dated to the 14th century BC. But cuneiform writing was not native to the Egyptians. So the Canaanites were not writing in cuneiform for the benefit of the Egyptians. This is one proof among archaeological relics that Canaanites did not use what we know as Hebrew or Phoenician characters in their writing. The writings in Canaan found with Hebrew characters and the spread of those characters abroad all belong to the Israelites. And this in turn serves to show that the Phoenicians among the Greeks the Phoenicians who brought letters to the Greeks at a time probably even earlier than the 14th century BC 
they also must have been Israelites and not Canaanites. Otherwise, the Greeks might be writing in cuneiform. Yeah, and we use that same alphabet still today, right? Uh, the Greek alphabet into the uh, Roman Latin alphabet and then all the modern European languages, um, you know, with exception maybe Russian and, you know, the, th those countries. But we still use the same Hebrew alphabet because we are the same people, right? Well, well right. And, and the Russian alphabet, the Cyrillic alphabet, was an invention of Orthodox monks in the 10th century. It's a contrived alphabet where it's not native to those people. What, where the Phoenician alphabet was carried everywhere into Europe, even the Germanic runes resemble all the corresponding Phoenician or Hebrew letters. And, and of course, the pagans would become upset with that but if you take the original Phoenician script, the runes are identical to it in, in many ways. The runes are almost perfectly identical, or, or at least the symbols all correspond very well, where you could see that the runes must have come from the Phoenician script. There's far too many resemblances for that to be coincidental. Yeah, especially if you look at the oldest runes. I believe they call it High German, is it? And that was close to like 200 AD or something. And then by like 1200 AD, it changed quite a bit. But that's what you expect after a thousand years. The alphabet's just going to keep evolving. Well, well, even the ancient Greeks, I believe it was Strabo of Cappadocia, attested that the Germanic people, whom he called Galatahi, or Gauls, Galatahi, he, he attested that they did not write in their own language. The Germanic tribes that he was familiar with used the Greek language for, for writing. So even Jordanus, the Gothic historian of the 6th century, he wrote in Latin. They were all writing in Latin by then. Yeah, yeah, and even um, Caesar said that about the Gauls, that they... Um... You know, they never wrote anything down with the Druids and all that. But they did, when, whenever they did have to write, they would use Greek letters or the same letters as the Romans. Absolutely. So, um, I believe you want to probably, you're eager to move on to point 23 of the 100 proofs. Yeah, yeah. Um, paganism identifies who are the lost sheep. Um, I was hoping you wouldn't mind just a tiny little uh, digression just to explain, um, you know, where it all starts with Noah and his sons getting off the boat. Uh, we already went over, you know, where they all spread. No need to go over that. But there must have been some basic myths and understanding that went into each of the societies. But our ancestors, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they had the the closest to the truth. And when you look at theirs, it's very close to what's going on today. But you can kind of trace it back. You know, you can see that it didn't just all come out of nowhere, that it all makes logical sense, right? Well, well right, absolutely. And, and the, the Hebrew Bible appears to borrow from all of these pagan traditions. But that's not true. The Hebrew Bible represents 
the truth of God, which was found in one degree or another in all of the other white branches, all of the other branches of the white people or, or the Adamic people at a very early time. They must have had elements of this truth. Noah is only 10 generations, the 10th generation from Adam. Noah was chosen for his righteousness. He must have known why and, and how he could be righteous in the land of the deluge where the people were being destroyed because of their race mixing. So Noah must have carried that knowledge with him or, or that ancient knowledge which was disseminated amongst two, disseminated down through his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons into those nations which are described in Genesis chapter 10, which came from the sons of Noah. So they must have all had elements of truth and, and in their separation extrapolated on it or, or embellished it in different ways, and, and they all ultimately became pagans. Evidently, also, there were outside influences from the so-called fallen angels, which are really other races that were always here, that the, um, that the, the embellishments and, and the foreign influences re were reflected in the later cultures, a thousand, two thousand years after Noah. But those core elements, and, and we're going to speak about some of them today, a lot of those core elements remained. The battle with the serpent, the battles of the gods and giants, and things like that remained. Yeah, and that symbol, um, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Oribus, the, you know, the serpent, uh, the Varan itself, that's so obviously all these other races that are surrounding, you know, that us basically, when they got off the ark, they knew that they were still here and that they were surrounded. And, um, you know, you already mentioned how the original Egyptians, they, um, you know, there were these Zuzims, roving creatures around them, and they didn't consider them people. And that's why right. they became a great civilization, because they were separate. Right, absolutely. And, and Zuzims, that, that's how it's um, described in the Hebrew scriptures, roving creatures. But this paganism that the old Adamic world went into, even though there were elements of truth, that there were also a lot of things that were lost. And if you read, um, I believe it's in Joshua, the book of Joshua, and, and I believe it's chapter 24, perhaps. It speaks about Abraham's ancestors, how they were even pagans. Joshua chapter 24, verses 2, 14, and 15. Even Abraham's ancestors were pagans. The society, as it describes in the wisdom of Solomon, the Adamic society was basically recreated or reformed in the Israelites of the Old Testament. And they were given laws and truths that those myths had represented, but were all perverted and corrupted by that time. Yeah, first the flood was used to, um, you know, purge all the uh, Adamic people who were race mixing. 
And then since Yahweh couldn't do it, do it a second time, he instead created the Israelites. He called them out of pagan world and intervened to save us, basically. Absolutely. Because the pagan world was mixing with the other races. So for Yahweh to preserve his creation, he, he had to basically choose out a, a, a nation from that world. That's the way we see it. Christianity has, has um, our religious beliefs have preserved our race. Religion is a stronger barrier against race mixing than any other barrier, political, economic. Religion has always been the strongest um, preserver of, of a culture or the quickest destroyer of a culture. Well, with that, I should get into the um, some of those legends of those other nations and pagan nations. The pagan Greeks had many traditions in their myths which can be traced back to either the Hebrew scriptures or to Mesopotamian legends, which parallel the Hebrew scriptures. And just as the Israelites had become pagans, the legends of the Greeks also fully reflect that predicament. In the oldest legends, the, battle, the battles of the gods and the giants, the throwing of the serpent out of heaven, by Zeus or by Apollo, because there are parallel stories, the mating of gods with earthly women. All of these things reflect accounts which are first found in Mesopotamia and parallel concepts or even descriptions of events which are found in Scripture. Even the power of divination acquired by Apollo as he slew the serpent Python reflects the origin of sorcery as it is alluded to in scripture. But in more subtle, common practices, there are parallels with the ancient Hebrews. For example, there is the method of execution for capital offenses practiced by ancient Greeks, which was stoning but the Persians and Assyrians preferred crucifixion, and that was the method later adopted by Alexander the Great and then by the Romans. The 5th century BC poet, Aeschylus, tragic poet, reveals that ancient Greeks understood the Hebrew concept of redemption and also the obligation of the next of kin, to avenge those who are unjustly murdered. These things are written into the Hebrew law. In his play, Libation Bearers, he wrote, Heaven's will under pledge declare that those beneath the earth complain in bitter anger and are wroth against their slayers. For what redemption is there for blood once fallen on the earth. And this also reflects a belief in an afterlife, that your spirit continues on after your body dies. Otherwise, how could you be dead and complain in bitter anger and be wroth against your slayer? 
So we read in Revelation chapter 6, a vision of John. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Meaning those those basically referring to those other races and mixed races that had destroyed the ancient children of Israel to a great degree. The fact that a lot of people might say, oh, well, John was copying from the Greeks. And, and that's not true because all of these things are also reflected in early Hebrew literature, such as the Psalms of David. You'll find all of those same concepts. In Numbers chapter 35, we read that when a man is slain, his next of kin are obliged to see that his slayer is brought to justice. 800 years after Moses wrote, in Libation Bearers, Aeschylus described Orestes. Orestes is the legendary son of Agamemnon. Agamemnon was the great leader of the Greeks who had crossed the sea to sack and pillage Troy. So when Agamemnon returned, he found his wife had a lover and his wife and her lover slew Agamemnon. They killed him. And Orestes is Agamemnon's son. So Aeschylus described Orestes as having travailed over avenging his father. He had to avenge, being the next of kin, he had to avenge his father's murder. And he travailed because it was his own mother and her lover who had slain him. So Orestes, speaking of an oracle he supposedly received from the pagan god Apollo, is depicted as having said, of a surety, the mighty oracle of Loxius, now Loxius was a nickname of sorts for Apollo, the mighty oracle of Loxius will not abandon me, charging me to brave this peril to the end, or to the fulfillment, and with loud utterance, proclaiming afflictions, chilling my warm heart's blood. If I avenge not my father on the guilty, bidding me, infuriated by the loss of my possessions, because Orestes was banished and disinherited after his mother had killed Agamemnon. So he's travailing the fact that he has to slay them in requital, even as they slew, and of other assaults of the avenging spirits he spoke, destined to be brought to pass from a father's blood for the darkling bolt of the infernal powers, who are stirred by slain victims of kindred race calling for vengeance. So Orestes travailed because he had to avenge his father's blood, but his mother was the killer, so he had to kill his own mother. That was the So that also means um, that us, the descendants of Seth, we have to avenge Abel. I, I, never, I can't believe I never realized that, but we are called to avenge Abel, right? Absolutely. And ultimately, we will by destroying all of the descendants of Cain. 
ultimately we will. And, and that's not just Jews. That's what early identity Christians had it wrong. Um, the descendants of Cain go far beyond the Jews. It, it includes Arabs, and, and today it includes, wow, many Mexicans and, and, and Southern Europeans and people of Northern Africans, all, all of the Arab world, all of the mestizos, and even beyond that, into India and Persia, it, it's incredible how they've spread. And they're among us, Jews and crypto-Jews in, in Western society for the last thousand years and longer. The ancient Greeks also had also evidently believed that someone may be cleansed of sin, either by baptism, flowing streams, or by the blood of sacrifice. And this Aeschylus had written in his play, Eumenides. And it says, it is the law that he who is defiled by shedding blood shall be debarred all speech until the blood of a suckling victim shall have besprinkled him. But by the ministrations of one empowered to purify from murder. Long since at other houses, I have been thus purified, speaking of humanities, I have been thus purified by victims and by both victims and flowing streams, meaning that you could be purified for your sin, either by the sprinkling of blood or by flowing streams, which is what the ancient Israelites in Judea would call baptism. That's how John baptized people in rivers. We may compare Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, where it says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, Paul was talking about the Old Testament method of purifying one for his sins. And Paul went on from that point to describe the sprinkling of blood as a ritual in the cleansing of the people. And he concluded in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. But the idea that men may be cleansed from sin by immersion in flowing streams at the hands of another does not appear in scripture until the baptism of John. So it was evidently a pagan practice. They also um, sacrificed bulls before um, great battles. Um, the, the Spartans or Lacedaemonians, the king always had to make a bull sacrifice before they went off to war. And even the Romans, they still did that before they went off. They would sacrifice a bull. Uh, Caesar was known to do that when he went for his uh, campaign in Africa. They sacrificed a bull uh, as a good omen, you know, from a blessing from the gods. So, so it's likely that it was a twisted tradition from the Israelites, right? Well, well, right. The Israelites also sacrificed for other reasons, reasons other than sin, that they sacrificed uh, bulls and goats and, and 
fatted oxen and and things like that in in order to appease God and and to win his favor. And the right, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans did the same thing. That the ancient Greeks also sacrificed out of thankfulness to God, the same way that the Hebrews often did in the Old Testament. Um, the Greeks even had a word, hecatom. A hecatom or hecatom what was the sacrifice of a hundred bulls. That's what it meant. So that they even had words for it where a great chieftain or, or ruler would sacrifice a hundred bulls to a god. These are not the only parallels between Greek and Hebrew culture which are recognizable in the writings of the Heskalus, but they are notable. Another tragic poet, Euripides, reflects many of these same practices among the Greeks and more. For example, in Electra, a tragic poem about a, a play, right? They were all plays, and they were written as poetry. And often parts of them, I believe, or, or maybe large parts or all of them were actually sung instead of simply recited like a drama. Um, Electra was one of the one of the women, I believe, who were booty from the Trojan War. And Euripides wrote this play about her. So in Electra, one character is depicted as saying, Ten days ago, the time a woman who has given birth keeps pure. And this compares to Hebrew law described in Leviticus chapter 12. If a woman has conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, According to the days of the separation for her infirmity, she shall be unclean. And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying thirty and three days. So in other words, for 40 days, she couldn't lie with a man. She was considered impure or unclean. But if she bears a maid child a daughter, then she shall be unclean two weeks, 14 days, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days, which is 66 days for a total of 80 days instead of 40. Now, we can't explain why it had to be that way, but there must have been a reason for it. But the Greeks... They seem to, that they had the same tradition, but they seem to have only shortened the time, right? They couldn't wait that long. The concept is the same concept, and except for the circumcision, it's expressed in the same terms. In another play by Euripides, Phoenician Women, which is an account of the women and people of Thebes, as it is being besieged by neighboring Greek tribes, in one single passage, there are many concepts expressed which are also evident in Scripture. And from line 910, the character Tiresias informs Creon, the king of Thebes, that as an oracle from the gods, he must 
slaughter his own son. Menorchius, in order to save the city, well, the entire story of the Hebrew Bible is that Yahweh God had to let his own son be slaughtered in order to save his people. But this was in vengeance against Cadmus, Cadmus the Phoenician, the legendary founder of Thebes, for his slaying of a dragon which was sacred to heirs. So we see the, the serpent connected to the pagan god, right? And I'm going to read from line 931, and it says, This boy must be slaughtered in the chamber where the earth-born snake, guardian of Durke's waters, came to birth. This snake, was, this dragon, was seen as the guardian of, of a certain spring that was supposedly holy to this goddess Durke, right? He must give the earth a libation of blood because of the ancient grudge of heirs against Cadmus. Of course, the Phoenicians were slaying lots of serpents around that time, right? Heirs is now avenging the death of the earthborn snake. If you do this, you will have heirs as your ally. And if the ground receives offspring in the place of offspring and mortal blood for blood, earth will be propitious to you. In other words, if, if, if this king of Thebes slays his own son, he's going to have the blessings of this pagan serpent god, right? This pagan god who was in love with this serpent and, and how is this not the same story as Rumpelstiltskin, who, who for the blood of a Christian baby would weave straw into gold? It, it's the same type of story in a lot of ways. And the Israelites were doing it as well, sacrificing their kids to Baal, right? Absolutely. So we read, Heirs is now avenging the death of the earth-born snake by either demanding the blood of Creon's son, his own son, or threatening to destroy the city if Creon doesn't give him the blood of his own son. And it says, if you do this, you will have heirs as your ally. And if the ground receives... Okay, I'm, I'm repeating. And if the ground receives offspring in place of offspring and mortal blood for blood, earth will be propitious to you. Earth who once sent forth the gold-helmeted harvest of the sown men. Now, the sown men were the Spartans, but they weren't the Dorian Spartans. They weren't the Dorians. The sown men, the Spartans, were the Spartans from before the Dorian invasions. And Sparta was a Danon city before the Dorian invasions. Now, we believe also that the Danans are Israelites, as we can demonstrate in the, the myths of their migrations from Egypt. But they evidently had this race among them called sown men, or who believed themselves to be sown men. When Cadmus slew that serpent that was holy to heirs, he was said to have taken the teeth of the serpent and thrown them into the ground. And the teeth of the serpent grew these men out of the ground. 
And that's a legend and a myth, but it probably represents some truth. So, one of this race, meaning this child, this son of Creon, one of this race must die. One begotten from the jaw of the snake sprung from the dragon's teeth, which Cadmus had cast into the earth. And it says, you are one of the last remaining members of the sown men here of pure lineage on your mother's and father's side. And so are your children. Hymon's coming marriage prevents him from being slaughtered, for he is not a man unwed. So Hymon won't be the subject of this sacrifice being demanded by heirs. It, it has to be Minoicus, evidently another son of Creon, right? Even if he has not yet experienced the bed of love, Still, he has a wife. This cult, sacrificial animal for the city, will rescue his fatherland by his death, referring the cult, referring to Minoicus, the son of Creon. Sari is the homecoming he will give Adrastus and the Argives, casting black death upon their eyes. He and glorious he will make Thebes. In other words, the city will be saved and rise to prominence if this Minoicus is killed, slaughtered by his own father. Of these two fates, choose one. Save your son or your city. And, and here in this one paragraph from Euripides, we have an entire array of concepts which are found in Hebrew scriptures. The kinsman avenger as an obligation, the cognizant earthbound serpent, a race among the Danans believed to have been sprung from the serpent, hence the name Sparta, from the Greek word spyro, which is to sow, right? From a verb meaning to sow. And Ares, the god of war, and Cadmus, the Phoenician founder of Thebes, are at enmity, and the serpent is associated with Ares throughout the story. Cadmus was also said to be the brother of Europa, and we see the Phoenician settlement of Europe as told in myth. Propitiation for the sin, for sin by the shedding of blood, the death of one, one man for the sake of the nation, the father's sacrificing of a son on behalf of his nation, and finally, the law that a man cannot go into battle who has recently married which is one year, according to Deuteronomy. All of these things expressed in Euripides, all of these concepts, traditions, myths, are found in the Hebrew Scriptures. This information and, and more, a lot more, I had long ago presented in a podcast titled Greek Culture is Hebrew that's, of course, still available at Christagenia. I don't know if you want to comment on any of that. Um, not, not on the Greek part. I was mostly looking forward to this uh, Germanic part, the Germanic paganism. I, I don't know much about the Greek, but I think you explained it very well. Well, well there's a lot of other parallels with, with the battles of the gods and giants and things like that. But but what I wanted to explain here, and we've already talked about them in, in, in past um, presentations in this series, but... These are like day-to-day -day beliefs and, and little rituals and things 
and, and little laws that they had that also reflect the, the same beliefs, rituals, laws found in the Hebrew scriptures. These are mundane things, not the big stories of the battle of the Titans. And that, that's a bit, that, that's a myth that could easily have spread throughout the world by word of mouth by itself. And even alien people would adopt it, right? That, that's sort of big myth. But these things are little mundane things, and and a lot of them are incidental laws that that um or, or traditions that that are found in both ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew cultures. Yeah, absolutely. As for Germanic paganism, and and I'm going to take a little break from this and get back to it. it. It's we have to take a couple of digressions, I think. As for Germanic paganism, the title Odin is cognate with the Hebrew word Adon, or Lord. Baal is another Hebrew word, which means Lord. So as for the name Baldur, even mainstream sources admit that the word can mean Lord or Prince in Old Norse. Baldur in Hebrew can mean Lord of a remnant, Lord of a habitation, or even Lord of a generation, because in the ancient Hebrews perceived a generation to be a remnant or remainder of a race alive at the given time. So the words are, the, the, the idea is related. So Baldur in Hebrew can mean Lord of a generation or Lord of a habitation. Lakai or Loki is a shortened form of Lucifer. In Old Latin, the C was never pronounced like an S like we do in English. That happened in ecclesiastical Latin. In the Middle Ages, in Old Latin, the C was always hard, like our K. And the Latin C always transliterated the Greek K. For example, in words like Sicily, in Greek, it was spelled with a K. It was Sicily. And Cilicia, in Greek, it was spelled with Ks. It was Kilikia. It was never Cilicia. So, Bill, the lost tribes, they would be like a remnant, like the Saxons, Scythians. So, so the Lord over them could be a Baldur, te technically Lord of a remnant yes, generation. Absolutely. Baldur could be the, the, a title for a tribal chieftain. In some accounts, it is said that Loki or Loki, I, I think I should pronounce it Loki, right? In some accounts, it is said that Loki had three children. <clears throat> the wolf, Fenris, the world serpent, and Hel. Hel was the goddess of the underworld originally, and her name came to replace the name of the underworld, right? Um, I think it might be Niflheim or Muspelheim. I don't even know, right? I don't know all of the Heims, all of the worlds of Germanic paganism. I think there were nine of them. Well, Loki's children were the wolf Fenris, the world serpent, and hell. In scripture, 
The children of Satan are frequently compared to wolves. Collectively, they are the serpent. And in some ways, they also represent hell and death, as the devil is said to have the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So it certainly seems that loci may have been introduced into Germanic myth in the Christian era. The punishment of Loki for his murder of Baldur is that he writhes in pain caused by the venom of a serpent. From this, it is said that he will be freed at Ragnarok, where he joins the side of the Jotun giants and the serpent, and with them he fights against the gods, which results in the destruction of the earth which also becomes flooded with water. Later, a new earth emerges from the deluge and is repopulated by two survivors. Here, it is absolutely apparent that all of this is a confounding of word-of-mouth accounts taken from both Genesis and the Revelation. And um, Loki in Venom just sounds like Jews, um, you know, sent out to live amongst the... Uh, their own kind or, you know, the, the other races as they suffer in their filth. Well, well right. And just as, as Loki was going to be released from, from this... Um, the pit. The, the, yeah, yeah, right. The, the pain he's in caused by the venom of the serpent. In, in the Revelation chapter 20, Satan climbs out of a pit and, and he represents the serpent that encircles the children of Israel, that encircles the camp of the saints. He brings all of the na other nations to war against the camp of the saints. That there are so many parallels that this can't be incidental. It can't be coincidental. This concept of a mighty serpent standing in opposition to both God and men, which is the entire theme of the Hebrew Bible, once it is properly understood, is also found in early Egyptian religion. As I explained at length several years ago in a podcast titled Pragmatic Genesis Part 27, I will try to summarize it here. And I had used many citations from inscriptions explaining that a prominent theme in early Egyptian writings is that of a battle between the sun god, Ray or Amon-Re, and Apophis, the giant serpent of the night sky. Each day, the serpent attempts to destroy the sun god as he enters into the night sky. But it, it is the task of the god Seth, the son of Amon-Re, to repel this beast, this giant serpent, so that the sun might enter and cross the underworld by night and be reborn in the morning. In like manner, man would survive death and be reborn. So, while it is evident from the inscriptions that the Egyptians envisioned a battle played out in heaven, which they represented with the sun god Re and his son Seth, against the serpent Apophis. Here on earth, there were so-called earth gods 
who had the form of serpents. And some texts relating the myth were actually magical incantations seeking protection from them. When Seth overcomes the serpent, the serpent is depicted as being in fetters or in chains, right? So Seth is binding. The son of God is binding the serpent in a pit. And man, during his own lifetime, before the end of his life, the serpent is going to try to get him. And he needs this magical incantation, which is really a prayer to the God, in order to escape being gotten by the serpent so that he could live again. That this, that this is basically very similar to the story of, of life and the relationship with God and his son found in the Hebrew Bible, the Celts. Yeah. It's all exactly the same. And, and as you said many times, Revelation came to um, reveal the actual truth, you know, put all these myths uh, into perspective, what really happened. Absolutely. And, and Revelation, we could see unfolding throughout history, and it describes the exact conditions of our world today. Um, there was one more God I just wanted to mention, and that was um, Tyr. Or, um, and originally he was the original you know, Germanic God, but he gradually got replaced with Odin as Odin became more important. And um, what, what was interesting is um, the more modern myth is that to bind the wolf Fenris, the gods were worried that this wolf was going to keep growing and growing and get too strong and destroy them. So they managed to trick it into uh, competing in feats of strength to see if they would bind it in chains and then... Um, Hope, they was hoping that they would could build one strong enough to bind it forever, and eventually they got a magical chain. But the wolf got suspicious, and as an insurance policy, he, he suggested that one of the gods put their hand in his mouth, as kind of you know like a hostage. If you're tricking me, then I'll bite your hand off. And Tia volunteered. So when they managed to put a, a magical chain around Fenrir, and he couldn't break out. In revenge, he bit Tyr's hand off. So in a way, Tyr sacrificed his hand to save the world from Fenrir, the wolf. <laughs> and to me, that's another parallelism with the, you know, the Bible that Yahweh God would sacrifice his right hand or his son to save the world, right? Absolutely. It, it's the same. What, why, did, what, why did the ancient pagans get ha, have myths that put them in this predicament? that they needed to be saved from a wolf or a serpent. Why? And and that's the whole story of the Hebrew scripture. Yeah. We're, and, we're going uh, to... Um, the Rock, the great final battle, that's when uh, Fenrir will break out of these chains and return. Obviously, that's already happened. You know, the Jews roaming around, deceiving the nations. Um, the Midgard serpent would uh, battle all of us. And that's what's happened with this mass migration. And then Tyr, or as he was generally replaced by Odin, would return with his son and battle this serpent and destroy him once for all, once and for all. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us, right? Well, absolutely, right. And, and we're going to return to Germanic literature um, 
momentarily. I have a few more things to say. But I, I want to um, talk about the Celts briefly because the Celts actually preceded the Germanic tribes in Europe. That the, that the Celts, the most ancient of whom we would assert had settled in the Isles of the West by sea from the Eastern Mediterranean, that they, the Germanic tribes really didn't come into Europe in, in large numbers until about the first or second centuries BC and into what I mean, Western Europe. In, in the fourth century BC, the Galatahi came down the Danube River and, and sacked Rome, right? Um, perhaps a hundred years before that, they had invaded the land of the Etruscans to the north and, and taken that for themselves, settled there. But that's rather late compared to the Celts, who were probably in, in the Isles of the Sea seven, eight hundred, a thousand years before the G Germanic tribes migrated. The Scythians and Sake or Galatahi migrated from, from Eastern Europe and from Asia. So we would assert that the Celts, the, the, the proto-Celts, they're called by archaeologists or anthropologists, the most ancient of them came from the, to the Isles of the West by sea from the Eastern Mediterranean, and they worshipped Bel, who in later Latin, later in Latin writing was called Bellinus. And Bel was a sun god, and he was represented by a horse and a wheel. Just like the Egyptian sun god required a similar conveyance to cross the sky during the day. But that is not all. Bel, the ancient Celts believed that Bel was taken across the sky in a chariot. Each day, the sun god rode a chariot across the sky. And he was called the shining god, right? The ancient Israelites had the same type of idolatry. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 11. And this is from a period about 640 BC, where it is speaking of Josiah, the king of Judah. And it says that he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering in or at the these horses were stationed at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malek, the Chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and burned, it says Josiah, burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So just like the Celtic god Bel had required this chariot to cross the day sky. We see that same thing in 2 Kings chapter 23, where Josiah recognized this as idolatry and burned the chariots of the sun with fire and took away those horses. So the ancient Israelites had bell worship very much the same as it's found among the Celts of the West at the earliest times. And this can be dated confidently in archaeology to precede the 3rd century BC. So returning to Germanic literature, 
There is a historical Odin who lived in or around the 3rd century AD, who founded a kingdom in Scandinavia and northwestern Germany and divided it among his sons when he died. So in the ancient Saxon Chronicles, and the most accessible place to read this might be in Sharon Turner's History of the Anglo-Saxons. In the ancient Saxon Chronicles, the kings of Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Saxony in Germany, and Anglo-Saxon England all reckoned their own genealogies in the number of generations it was in which they had descended from Odin. The same Odin was said to have led his people from Asa, which can be identified as Asia, Asia Minor, and it is very likely that Odin was a Scythian tribal king of those Scythians who dwelt along the southern coast of the Black Sea in Asia Minor. Furthermore, according to Bede, Anglo-Saxon Christians in Britain were bringing the gospel of Christ to northern Germany even before his time, at least as early as the 7th century AD, long before the Eddas were set down in writing by Snorri in the 13th century. Roman Asia is the Asa of the Eddas. The Aesir may be identified as Scythians who had migrated into northern Europe through Roman Asia from the region of the Pontus, and the Vanir as Scythians who migrated from the area around Lake Van, which was further east and under control of the Parthians. That's my theory on that. That's my opinion on that. There are other parallels between the Norse pagan religion and Christianity. Writing in January of 2002, Clifton Emmerheiser had cited a book called The Story of Norway by Hjalmar Boyesen. And from chapter two of the book, he made the following quote, in part, from where it describes the creation of man. And Boyesen had written, One day, when the three gods, Odin, Honer, and Loder, were walking on the shores of the sea. They found two trees, and from these they made a man and a woman, named Ask and Embla, or Ash and Elm. Odin gave them the breath of life. Honer, speech and reason. Loder, blood and fair complexions. Further describing the religion of the pagan Norsemen, we see that Odin is the All-Father and received wisdom by trading an eye for the opportunity to drink water from the root, from under the root of a certain tree. Adam and Eve were also made wise from their own illicit relationship with the tree. Is that a coincidence? Odin is said to have discovered the runes. But the runes are just as similar to the Phoenician alphabet as the Greek alphabet that they credited to the Phoenicians. In some accounts, it is said that Odin had hanged himself on Yggdrasil, the tree of life, for nine days and nine nights in order to gain knowledge of other worlds and be able to understand the runes, understand the writings.
The Hebrew Messiah was prophesied to hang upon a tree, which was fulfilled in Christ, and that fulfilled the writings. But he hung upon the tree for completely different reasons. The tree upon which Odin hung was Yggdrasil, the tree of life, and in Scripture there was also a tree of life, which was both at the beginning and shall remain at the end. There are so many similarities between Christianity and Germanic paganism that just like their alphabet, the religion of the pagan Germanic tribes must have come from the Hebrews. So it seems that if the accounts of Snorri are reliable, then the early Germanic pagans took things they had heard from scriptures and attributed them to their tribal chieftain, whom they called after the Hebrew term Odin for Lord. If Snorri is not reliable, which I suspect, then he himself may have injected some of these things. But without them, where is there any real religion in the Eddas? Many pagan sins, which were also committed by ancient Israelites, were reflected in the Eddas. For example, there's the child sacrifice of King On of Sweden which is described in the Heimskringla. Then there is the sacrifice by Agamemnon of his daughter, Iphigenia, which was described in the Epic and Tragic Poets. So, the, the sins yeah, are the same, the myths are the same, or parallel, that there's way too many correlations here for any of this to be coincidental. Yeah, exactly. And Snorri, he was in about, was it 1100 AD, maybe even 1200. So he was really reading old manuscripts and, you know, writing them up. But this, he's like going back a thousand years. So so this isn't, you know, he's basically trying to tell us what it used to be like. So you'd expect that, you'd expect it to be evolved and it not to be 100% exactly what it was a thousand years before. He's just trying to tell us how he believed it was. And he was over in Iceland. So could he give an exact, um, you know, reliable account of what the Germanic peoples, you know, believe there's going to be, you know, some myths that kept changing and evolving. Uh, another one that I thought was interesting was Yggdrasil, the tree of life. It was constantly being devoured. There was these stags and rats that are constantly eating it. And it's constantly, um, you know, being diminished, and that's the need for the last battle at Ragnarok, which you can see is exactly the tree of life, uh, our race, basically race mixing, right? Well, well, right. Absolutely. That's exactly the way I see that. And and you talked about um, Snorri not, perhaps not quite accurately representing some of the characters or, or myths in, in his Eddas. If, if you read the Nibelungen lead, the Nibelungen lead came down to us in an entirely different path than Snorri Zetas, right? The Nibelungen lead belongs to Germanic people of the continent. It was also preserved by monks. And there are a couple of injections that monks made, medieval monks, into the story of the Nibelungen lead that were not original. However, the Nibelungen lead is set in Varms, in the Rhineland, 
which was at that time controlled by the Burgundians. Now, later in history, and, and in the 5th century AD, later in history, the Burgundians were driven west into France by invading Saxons. So in the 5th century, they were in Varms in the Rhineland. And that province, Burgundy in France, is, of course, named after the Burgundians. So, in the Nibelungen lead, you see a lot of um, characters who are also mentioned in the Eddas of Snorri. But they have different traits, different attributes, slightly different roles, but they're basically the, the same people. So, that there's a lot of parallels in Snorri with literature, some of the literature that we find in Germany, but there are differences also, significant. Yeah, and um, many pagans, they always, um, you know, uh, one, one common thing is they'll point to how our days are named, right? Like Sunday named after the sun, moon day after mo Monday, the moon, and then Tuesday, which is uh, Tear or Tiwas day, Wednesday, Wodin day, Thursday, Four day, Friday, Freya day, and they'll say, oh, that's our real ancestry, that the Christians that they just, um, you know, perverted our beliefs. But our original uh, beliefs was these pagan beliefs. But when you realize the pagan beliefs are based on Hebrew and Israelite traditions, then then you realize it all, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. Because all of these parallels are not a coincidence. There are far too many. Yeah. The... Where, where do you believe um, uh, Freya came from? Do you believe that was actually uh, the queen of heaven? That's just a, a silly pagan tradition? Well, well, even in scripture, the, the Israelites who were turning to paganism created a queen of heaven. I believe it was Ashtaroth, right? Yeah, and sometimes it's Isis, right? The, the other versions. Well, Isis would be the Egyptian version, right? Yeah. And Ashtaroth made it into um, Greek mythology as a start but she had a different role. I don't Is believe... Is Athena related to that at all? Well, Athena, in, in scripture, what we have a, 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 a pagan idol named Anath. Anath was a... Um, no, not in scripture. In Canaanite inscriptions, we find an Anath, who was a Canaanite pagan idol. And... That, I believe, is the origin of Athena. I would have to look it up to speak about it more intelligently. Anath. Anath. Ugarit. You can see it's interjected by Canaanites. That, oh, no, there's not Yahweh. There's also a queen of heaven. Right. Well, Anath was a war goddess. And if you read the epic poets, so was Athena. She was a perpetual virgin, and, and she was always engaged in war. That They had a lot of similar attributes. And in, um, in ancient Phoenician, sometimes they wrote right to left, and sometimes they wrote left to right. So words can be um, transposed, can be reversed backwards very easily. And I actually have examples of this in the Bible with certain names. I don't remember where they are offhand, but they are there. 
So if you look at the consonants in Anath, it, it could easily be reversed and become Athena once a Greek feminine ending is placed on the word. So I believe that a star in, in um, I don't really remember her role in, in Greek mythology. I would have to look that up. A Hellenized just form. Just one more. Astarte um, is the Hellenized form of, of, of Ashtoreth, which is found in, as the queen of heaven in the scripture, and also of Ishtar. Ashtoreth is Ishtar, and that's the word we get Easter from and all that. Yeah. Her, her and role then just in... one more. Do you think Thor comes from uh, Troy? I, I've read that Troy in Germanic would be pronounced Thor, and that 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 was a big tradition that the kings originated from there. They had a bloodline, uh, and then eventually Thor was said to be an ancestor of Odin, but eventually it got reversed, and he was the son of Odin, the war god. Right. But I'd rather think that the the word Thor is actually related to Tor, which in English is a high craggy rock, just like it is in Hebrew. But in Hebrew, it's Thor, T-S-O-R. And, and that T-S character can become either a T or an S in other languages. And only sometimes a Z. Tyre comes from that word. And so does Syria. And so does our English word Tor. Because a, a, a Thor... T-S-O-R in Hebrew is a high craggy rock at a high rocky peak, just like a Tor is in English. And, and I've always thought that Thor may have come from that. I can't be certain. Thor is the god of thunder, is he not? I believe. Yeah, and he wields a big hammer. <laughs> yes. And he will slay the serpent. I think that's, um, that's about all I have to say about, about, um, the pagan beliefs and parallels with, with the Hebrew scriptures for now. Yeah, sure. Should we move on to the next one then? Yes, certainly. Point number 24. Many traditional English names are taken from those of the apostles and other biblical figures. They're not named uh, Tyrone or Abu or, you know, anything like that. We always named ourselves very commonly after these apostles and although originally they were in greek that got translated we, we still use them today right and the other races don't well well right absolutely and 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 this is that this is just one glaringly evident aspect of the fact that christian civilization and culture is naturally connected to the civilization and culture of the ancient Israelites because they, they've, um, of, of the sharing of these common names and the fact that Europeans, once they turned to Christianity, readily accepted these names to a great degree. Even where it's not entirely evident it, it, to, to the average person, there are still connections to these names. And some of the names were even Hellenized names, right? In, even in the New Testament, when Christ comes, Luke, that, that's actually a Greek name, right? 
Well, Luke was really a Greek, a Greek convert, early Greek convert to Christianity at Antioch. But Mark is a is a um, that the Judeans of the two centuries before Christ, a lot of them had resisted Hellenization. And on the other side of the coin, a lot of them embraced Hellenization. And that was like a separate undercurrent, a, a point of contention amongst the, the Judean population. Regardless of whether they were Edomite or Israelite, didn't matter. That a lot of them sought Hellenization and, and a lot of them resisted it. So James is a Hebrew name. John is a Hebrew name. Joseph is a Hebrew name. Philip is a Greek name. Matthew is a, is a Hebrew name. Mark is, is a Greek or actually a Roman name. I don't believe it's a, it's a Roman name, not a Greek name. So we see this Hellenization and, and of course, Romanization in some aspects, right? Um, Peter is, of course, a Greek name, but Paul always called Peter Cephas. Cephas is the Hebrew equivalent of Peter. Both Petros and Cephas mean stone. So the, the, um, the early Christians readily adopted these New Testament names because they were all sharing the same culture. But Early Christians also adopted a lot of Old Testament names, Micah, Elijah, um, Adam, Aaron, Benjamin, Dan, Daniel, Jacob, Jesse, Joel, Joshua as male given names. Now for females, Mary is from Hebrew. Elizabeth is from Hebrew. Deborah or Deborah is from Hebrew. Abigail is from Hebrew. Anna I'm honestly not sure. Anna is from Hannah, which is Hebrew, not Greek. I'm sorry. Um, Hannah is a variation. Anna is a variation on Hannah. Chloe is from, I believe that's from Greek. Judith is from Hebrew. Lydia is from Greek. Naomi is from Hebrew. Rebecca is from Hebrew. Rachel is from Hebrew. Sarah is from Hebrew. Susan, Tabitha, they're Hebrew names, most of these female names, with some Greek names among them. Um, so all of our traditional names have been Bible names, and this is even evident before Christianity, where, Greek, where the Greeks had some given names in common with the Hebrews. The name Simon was always popular in ancient Greece. Simon today is very popular in Britain. So all of these names are, are Bible names. Some of them are, are um, belong to Hellenized Judeans. Jason is found in the Bible, right? That's a, a, a Judean man. The Jason found in the New Testament in the book of Acts is a Judean man who was from a family that accepted Hellenization. It's funny how the Jews try and only pick the really old, like Old Testament sounding ones like Isaac and Abraham and Moses and, and those to try and, uh, you know, keep up this deception that they are from the Old Testament and we're the New Testament. 
Well, absolutely. But but uh, American Protestants today, Caleb is a popular name and and yep. and and other Levi and other names that that are Aram, Old Testament names. And and that they choose those names. Joshua is extremely popular. They choose those names because that they feel an affinity for those people, even if they don't understand the connections, that, that the cultural affinity is there, and, and it's always been there, where other races of people have never had that cultural affinity with the scriptures and the people of the scriptures. They've never had it. Even today, what we see American negresses named um, Shaquina and Shakanda and Lakeisha and wow. <laughs> Names that can't even be spelled on birth certificates properly. <laughs> the average Christian white person doesn't know how to spell. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's um, a lot of names that you don't even realize um, that have that connection, right? Like Jerry, you know, you can trace that to Jeremiah or, or, or Gerard and, you know, and, and lots of names like that that people wouldn't even realize unless you just showed it to them that that's, that's where the name just evolved from, right? Well, well, right, and that's what I tried to say when we first started this part of our discussion is that even in a lot of cases where it's not evident that a name is a Bible name, the name is still a Bible name, <laughs> and and Jerry is one of them. That that Jerry, Gerald, Gerard, that they're um, that they Jack, came from uh, variations Jacob. on the biblical name Jared or, or Jeremiah. Yeah, and and Joe's another one, right? For Joseph, Jack from Jacob. There's there's so many. Absolutely, James, I believe, in in that form that we know it. James is actually um, is actually French. It 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 actually refers to a ham leg, but in in Greek it's Jacobus or Jacob. And I believe that the connection there that the the James comes from a word for the shank of, of an animal in French. And I think particularly a swine or a pig, right? I'm, I'm not, I don't quite remember if it's used of other animals. But um, Jacob had grabbed his brother's heel. And, and I think that's the connection there. But maybe they were stretching when the translators took that Jacobus of the New Testament and translated it as James. All right, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, grabbing the leg. A word with a um, French I meant to ask you, what, what about the um, Anglo-Saxon names? They really like the A-E. Is there anything uh, relating to Hebrew or Greek? You know, like Ethelwolf and, you know, Alfred originally was A-E, but the modern translation that is just Alfred. But a lot of those uh, Saxon names, they had that A-E. Is there anything there? Well, well you know, the A-E diphthong is popular in Latin, and, and it's also found in Greek as AI. Um, words like air and ether actually start with that AI, and that's translated into an A, transliterated into an AE in Latin. But 
with the Anglo-Saxon names, they never wrote in their own language that they were actually actually transliterating their Germanic names into in Latin characters, right? So I, I can't be certain of what those names may have looked like in the old Saxon languages. I'd have to study Saxon manuscripts. I've never done that. I don't know much about that language. So I can't comment. Okay, and well, I guess just one more thing on them. What, what about um, they, they really liked um, Noble Wolf, and um, Arthur's meant to be um, Strong Bear, or I believe something like that. Is there anything there as well, or is that just what you'd expect? Lost tribes as they traveled, and um, you know, they were all warriors that they would just pick strong names like that. That's probably what I would lean towards. Okay that they really don't have a tribal affiliation. It, it's just men trying to give their sons names that they hope that they live up to, right? It yeah. was a very warlike society, medieval Saxon society. They weren't Christianized. I, I mean, the Anglo-Saxons in England were Christianized by the, probably by the sixth, seventh century. And and there were that there was Christianization going on in England and Germany that was apart from the Roman Catholic Church, and that's very clear in the writings of Bede, who who was an Anglo-Saxon um, churchman of of the early eighth century, I believe, when he wrote, and he's writing about the history of Christianity in Anglo-Saxon England. So there was Christianization from the Celtic Church, which is older even than the Roman Catholic Church, which was going on among the Anglo-Saxons and in Germany. From the Celtic Church, before the Roman popes got their claws on, on the kings of England, right? Yeah. And, and and what's fascinating is that the conquerors accepted the the religion of the people they conquered, right? That they must have believed it. If not, they would just say, "F off," you know. We'll keep our religion. You you're the slaves. We're the masters. Right. But the the bottom line is first first Christianity, and and of course this is recorded that this existed long before and any interaction with. Germanic people in Europe, Christianity reflected a lot of what they believed in paganism is found in Christianity. And, and second, that their paganism is missing um, serious elements of, of moral fabric and consistency to the narrative. Uh, I mean, paganism is not a complete belief system by itself. It never will be. It, it's a license to hedonism. That's what it really is. It's a license to um, humanism and, and the, the idea that man can create God and form God in his image, and then he could live how he pleases rather than live for the sake of his kindred brethren and, and his wider community, which is how man should live. The, the pagan yeah. the, the pagan heroes lived for their 
usually lived only for their own glorification. Yeah, for fame and glory, exactly. And and All riches. Right. Yeah. Okay, so was there anything else? This was kind of a short point, but that's fine. Was there anything else you wanted to say on this one? No, no there's not much more that I can say, except that it, it shows that even from way before the time of Christ, that there were that there was a common culture base in in, in these names and their meanings between Europeans and Hebrews. I exactly. think that's all I need to say. That the other races never had, and they shouldn't have. So we can move oh. on to point twenty-five. Yeah, Actually. sure. Um, we we briefly mentioned this where Peter addresses, I believe it was the Galatians, or at least you know the people around that vicinity, that they are an elect race or royal priesthood, and you know, uh, and it's commonly mistranslated to generation, but it should be race. But this is exactly what Moses said to the Israelites in the Exodus. So, so how can they not be the same people, right? The, the Europeans and these Israelites that Moses was leading out uh, of Egypt into our new land, the new promised land, right? Well, well right. Peter's addressing um, not only Galatahi, the, the Greeks considered the, the, the um, Sake or Scythians who had migrated into Europe. They called them Galatahi. But they also identified the Germanic tribes in the east, in the area of um, Armenia, which they called, which Strabo called Sakasene, right? That the area of, of northern Syria that was just below Armenia was called Sakasene. And, and he describes Sake or Scythians as dwelling there and in Bithynia and Pontus and those regions, um, which, which were along the southern coast of the Black Sea, or, or the Pontus, as they also called it. Um, those people were evangelized early on, and I believe that's where the Scythians or, or the Germanic tribes came from that Odin led out of there in, in the second or third centuries into Europe. Well, well, it's those people, plus it's the Galatahi, plus it, it's um, when you read the opening verses of Peter's first epistle, plus it's the Greek Christians of Asia, and, and Eastern Anatolia. So he's writing basically to all of the churches of Anatolia from Cappadocia in the east all the way to Asia. The province of Asia was in southwesternmost Anatolia around ancient Miletus and Ephesus. Well, well he's writing of, to Christians who are scattered throughout Anatolia where Paul had founded Christian assemblies and Peter is writing from Babylon in the east to these assemblies that Paul, primarily Paul, had founded, Paul or his followers in turn. And they are from the Scythians, the Sake, that the Galatians and the Greeks and, and Romans are all Christians by this time 
or at least Christians come from all of those subdivisions of our race at this time that Peter's writing. So it's not just Galatians or it's not just Greeks. It's all of these people are dwelling in these areas and have become, many of them had become Christians. In, in fact, um, Pliny the Younger, I believe that Pliny was the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus. And he had written letters back to Rome explaining the, the problem that he had with thousands of people that were Christians in Bithynia and Pontus, where, where the, the, the um, successors of Paul of Tarsus had founded churches, but not Paul himself, not in, in the records in the book of Acts anyway. So Peter calls these people who are from different races or from tribes considered different races the way the Greeks use the term. Because to the Greeks, a Ganea could be a division within a nation, like the, the, the race of Heracles is the descendants of Heracles, even though they belong to a larger nation, right? That's how the Greeks used the term in ancient times, that a Ganea could, it, it was a race, but it was, it could be a division of a wider race or a wider group of people. So if we look at the Israelites, at one time, they were a division of the Hebrews. So they were a race and they became many nations. The Romans, the Dorian Greeks, the Danan Greeks, the Scythians, the Galatahi, all descended from the ancient Hebrews, as we've discussed here at length. But it's one race which became many nations over a great deal of time. So they could still be considered a race. And that's how Peter uses that word when he says in 1 Peter 2, 9, and the King James says, but you are a chosen generation. Well, you know what? If there's only one chosen generation, then there shouldn't be any Christians today. That's ridiculous, that translation. And the church just doesn't want to face the fact that Peter was speaking about a race, singular. Not you are chosen races, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, singular. A peculiar people. Now, I don't know how many nations of different races lumped together would be peculiar. I, I, well, yeah, we do. They'd be peculiar freaks and mongrels, right? A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when we read the prophets, especially Isaiah, we see that it was the children of Israel in ancient times who were estranged from God, who were put into darkness. They were sent into darkness in the Assyrian captivities and the Babylonian captivities and promised that they would be called back into light. In other words, that they would be, they would learn the truth of God once again. That's what that promise means. And Peter says that using singular terms, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
And that language comes straight from Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, where Yahweh had said to the children of Israel, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, Peter's royal priesthood, and a holy nation, words which Peter also used in 1 Peter 2.9. These are the words which thou shalt speak, Yahweh instructing Moses, unto the children of Israel. So Peter evokes this same exact language in relation to the Christian people of his time, that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, meaning that building of a Christian society, they would serve God as a race of priests. They would serve God and a holy nation and a peculiar people. That's all right from Exodus 19.5. But then Peter goes on in, and, and this cements our interpretation. He goes on in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, the, the very next verse. And he says, <clears throat> which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not in the past obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And the Judeo-Christian churches twist this all up, and they ignore the fact that Peter is making a citation from Hosea chapter 1, verse 9. And he's connecting this, that these promises of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. He's connecting them by saying this to the ancient Israelites. And I'm going to read a portion, three verses from Hosea chapter one. Then God said, now Hosea was instructed, the prophet was instructed to go find a whore. And the whore represented the Israelites, because the nation at the time was described as being a whore, because they were consorting with all these other nations and, and engaging in ancient globalism, international trade, exchanges in religion. They were becoming pagan. And, and all of these evils that we're doing again today, they were doing back then. So they were represented by a whore. And Hosea is writing in the middle of the 8th century B.C., right around 760, 750 B.C., perhaps, he starts writing. So God said, Hosea was instructed to have a child with a whore, and he did. He went and got the whore pregnant and had a baby. And God said, call his name Loami. For you are not my people, representing the children of Israel. And I will not be your God. But then there's a promise. God is rejecting Israel, but he still extends these promises. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass now. Peter had wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, 
Lo ami means in Hebrew, not my people. Yet in the place where it was said to them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. We see that this was a promise to the children of Israel that they would be rejected by God for their sins, but they still had that promise that where they were rejected by God and called not his people, that they would once again in the future be called his people again. That in the place where it was said unto them, Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, ye are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Well, when Hosea was writing, the children of Israel were being taken off into Assyrian captivity and they were called not my people. And then when Christ came 800 years later, there Paul of Tarsus and the other apostles who went to those same scattered 12 tribes of Israel said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God, meaning the descendants of those same Israelites. And Hosea goes on in verse 11 to write, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. That head is Christ. And they shall come out, come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And Jezreel, Jezreel means God sows. Not the serpent's teeth, right? The children of God. God sows. So, that is the scattered 12 tribes of Israel who became a great multitude of people that couldn't be measured or numbered, right? As the sand of the sea, right? In their Assyrian captivities and in the other colonies that they established abroad before the Assyrian captivities. But those other colonies were also cut off at the time of the Assyrian captivities. So they became an innumerable multitude Josephus says that the children of Israel were beyond the Euphrates River, dwelling beyond the Euphrates River, and had become an innumerable multitude that he could identify in his time, and that's in his antiquities. I don't remember which book, book 9, book 11, I don't remember. But Josephus attested that the children of Israel in his time, first century A.D., had gone beyond the Euphrates River and had become an innumerable multitude. Who did that? When we look beyond the Euphrates River in the time of Josephus, we only see the Germanic Sake and Scythians, those tribes, the Goths and, and, and the Alans and the, the, the other related Germanic tribes. We don't see any Jews, none, zero there might have been a synagogue somewhere on the shores of Cap <laughs> on the shores of the Caspian Sea, maybe. <clears throat> so Peter was making a direct citation from Hosea chapter twenty-one, and then where he says, "Which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy." In the opening verses of Hosea chapter 2, Hosea had had another child, and the child was 
what was named Ruhama. And Ruhama means mercy. So Peter is making a direct correlation to this to to this prophecy. Because before Loami was born, the first child, I'm sorry, Loami was the second son that Hosea had had with the whore. The first son is in Hosea chapter one, verse verse eight. I'm sorry, verse six. It wasn't a son, it was a daughter. And I'm a little confused because I didn't start this citation at the beginning. But the daughter was born. She conceived again and bare a daughter. So Loami was born first, not my people. But Loruhama was born. Or, or no, Loami was born after Loruhama. Loruhama was born. The first child was named Jezreel. And that means God sows. Then he had a daughter with the whore in verse 6. And it was named Loruhama. And it says, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. Well, Loruhama means no mercy. So there is no doubt that Peter, he's not just repeating this language because it sounds cool. If, if he wanted language that just sounded cool or, or it just sounded good, he had a billion things to pick from. Here he's making very specific citations which refer to the ancient children of Israel and which can only refer to the ancient children of Israel because it is them who were put off by God, who were rejected as his people, who were not given his mercy. But at the same time, when you read those same prophets, they're promised that they would be reconciled in the future and that they would would receive mercy. That happened in Christ, and that's why Peter is citing these, that these words from the prophet Hosea, and we see the same exact situation prophesied for the children of Israel, and Peter is preaching its fulfillment in these um, Germanic and Greek tribes in Anatolia. There's that this is not coincidental. Peter isn't saying this because it's cool to say or, or because he thought it sounded good. He is making a, a historic illustration which reflects the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. That's what he's doing. And these Israelites are being called to be Christians. Nobody else is being called to be Christians. When you read the letters of Paul, he spoke of the gospel of reconciliation. And that's even the way it's worded in the King James Version. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 mentions his ministry. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. And he calls the gospel the word of reconciliation. Why would he, why would he do that if he wasn't reconciling ancient Israelites to God through Christ? Yeah, you have to have already have been with God to be reconciled, right? Or if you lost mercy, but then you gained it back. The, the only way is if you were the Israelites. There's no other way. He's not just going to random people. 
Absolutely. I should have taken a wider passage from Hosea. That's referring to where every man's the priest of his house, right? Uh, not, Not that we should have a priest ruling over us. Well, well, right. That priest, <clears throat> the idea of a priest comes from the concept of, of one who serves God, right? And, and a liturgy, that, that's the Greek word liturgus, that is something, that, that's a word that had to, um, that was related to the politics of ancient Athens, and a liturgus or, or a liturgia. A liturgia was an act that was done by one of the citizens for the benefit of the people of the city. So it was a way that the wealthy citizens served the, the people by, by creating some act, some beneficent act for the people. And, and paying for it, financing it. Sometimes it was the building of a ship for the Navy, that a wealthy citizen would finance the building of the ship for the Navy. That was his expected service. Or sometimes it was simply the, the building of a theater or, or the financing of a production in the theater for the entertainment of the people, depending on the political circumstances of the time. The, the, these... um. That, that's the word from which the, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches adopted their word for liturgy. But it's supposed to be a, a man's service to his people. And when we serve our people, we are priests to God. When we do things for our people. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they've twisted all this language and they've specialized it for themselves, for their own priests. But in true Christianity, we all serve God. We are all priests. In, in, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Israel is his servant. How do we collectively serve God? We collectively serve God by loving one another caring for, providing for one another, for our own Adamic Christian kindred. And in that way, we build the kingdom of God on earth. That's how we serve God. That's how we should be priests to God. Every Christian is a priest. Every man is the priest of his own household. Yes, that's the way it's supposed to work. That's true Christianity, as opposed to fake-ass, bullshit, church Christianity. It's all fake. It's all about... Yeah, yeah, as Christ said, the greatest thing you can do is sacrifice yourself for your people, right? Right. By, by serving them, just as you said. And, and, and what do you say? How, how, keep the commandments, and my commandment is this, that you love one another. Not that you go to some church every week. No, nobody was commanded to do that in the New Testament. Christians were, were expected to gather among themselves every week. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you about these words, um, holy and um, peculiar, because often they're distorted. Like holy means that, uh, you know, a priest has blessed something like holy ground. But holy actually means devoted to God or separated, doesn't it? At least right. the original this... meaning. It's not like holy water over something. That there is two words translated as holy in, in the New Testament 
and that's unfortunate because we lose so much meaning when when that happens. Um, the first word is hosius, and and hosius is what is ordained by God, not by man. So hosius isn't what's sanctified, but but it's what God sanctifies as just or as righteous or, or as correct. Yeah, you could apply Hosius to um, the law, the precepts of the law that come from God. They are Hosius. They are holy in, in that sense. But there's another word, Hagius. And Hagius is something that is taken and devoted to a God or to the purposes of a God. And that's often done on the part of man. Sometimes the God could demand that something be Hagius. Hagius is the term we see here, holy nation, right? Um, Hagius is something that's set apart and dedicated to the use or purposes of God. And the Greeks had that same language with that same intention in their most ancient poetry, where a man would dedicate something to a, in a temple to a god, it would become hagius. It would become the property of that god. So if you sought the, the favor of a god, you would take some gold or, or whatever else you might have. It could be cattle. And you could walk them down to the temple of the god that you whose favor you are seeking and put that on the altar or present it at the altar because you can't really put oxen on an altar, right? Um, you would present it at the altar or place the object on the altar. And when you did that, it became dedicated to the God of that temple for his use, which the priests would really determine, right? So you could no longer, that, that object is gone. It's dedicated to God to the God of the temple. In that is, that is the significance of the sacrifice of Isaac. I was just when, gonna say that you're talking about Isaac, aren't you? Right, and, and people, average churchgoers don't understand this. But when Isaac was placed on the altar by Abraham, because Yahweh demanded that Abraham do that, it doesn't matter that Isaac wasn't actually killed. What matters is that Abraham placed Isaac on that altar. And in the ancient world, that means that Isaac now belongs to God and not to Abraham. And then um, Isaac's two um, sons, the, the purpose there was to show, even though we're dedicated to God, if you follow Esau, then he can disown you. Right. Absolutely. Esau was renamed Edom after Adam. Because Esau followed the ways of the fleshly man. Um, Jacob and the rest was, of the Adamic race. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and Jacob was renamed Israel because he prevailed with God. He will rule with God. So that's why they were renamed those particular names. But Esau is every bit as hagios as Jacob was because he was also in the loins of Isaac when Isaac was placed on that altar. So Isaac and all his descendants are hagios. They are dedicated 
to the purposes of God. That doesn't make them good as we might see good and evil. But Esau, as Paul explains, and as the prophets also allude to, Esau, the children of Esau, are vessels of destruction. God is using them for his purposes, but not for good, where Jacob and his descendants are vessels of mercy. And that's found in Romans chapter 9. Yeah. And so, um, just lastly, peculiar, that actually means, um, sorry, I had it in front of me, so something that belongs to someone or related to the person. So a peculiar people, again, it, sh it means that we are dedicated to God. It, in this instance, it doesn't necessarily mean strange or unusual, right? Well, well the word peculiar in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, is from the Greek word peripoiesis. And a, a peripoiesis is basically, it, it could mean a preservation or an acquisition or a possession. You would be a peculiar people, that you would be people possessed by me. And that's the peculiar treasure of Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, we see, for thou art a holy people. Now, that would be Kadash, which had basically the same meaning as Hagios in Greek, something which is dedicated to God. For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, and that word is segalah in Hebrew, and it means a possession or property. So where Peter used peripoiesis in Greek, he is in evoking that term segula in Hebrew, which is a possession or property, because peripoiesis in Greek, it is... It, it describes an acquisition or a possession. It's, a, it's basically a synonym. So all of Peter's language in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, can only refer to the children of Israel from the Old Testament and their descendants. Those who didn't, were not granted mercy, but those who were called not my people, and now in the gospel of Christ, who came only for the lost sheep of the children of Israel, they are now his people once again, as it is promised in Hosea chapter 1. And they now have mercy, as we see in the opening verses of Hosea chapter 2. Peter's not just making those things up. He's teaching us the fulfillment of the prophets, referring to the children of Israel. Yeah, and it still stands today, you know, uh, English, French, America, we're still that peculiar treasure that people have no idea of that. They don't realize that uh, it's the same thing even today. They've got to realize that. No alien, nobody of another race can legitimately have any part in this relationship. If your father leaves you a will and he leaves it specifically to you and your children... I can't walk in from another geographical region, from another tribe or nation, or even from another 
descendant of one of your fathers through another son. I can't just walk into your house and say, oh, well, I believe in your father, so I'm, I'm going to have a part in your, your will, your inheritance. That's stealing. <laughs> That's stealing. And, and all these people of other races pretending to be Christians, they're stealing. Yeah, exactly. They're only here because they want to live off um, our riches, right? Absolutely. That, that's the only reason why. And they're only quote-unquote Christians because they know they will be rewarded by our naive society or, or our society that was deceived by Jews, by the serpent. That's what's really going on. Yeah. Well, well I think that, that that's probably the, the next portion, um, true Israelites having been divorced and, and dispersed, could never again resettle it. Well, we should probably start off next week with that one. It, it yeah, might, sure. Otherwise, we're going to be here two and a half, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, TruthVids. I, I really do appreciate you. And, and I, I, I don't know, we're getting a lot of good feedback with this, with, with this series, I, I do have a concern that some people that are new to Christian identity, that that um, they want to start here, or, or with the Weissman series that we did together earlier this year. I don't know if there are places here might be a good place to start, but the Weissman series is not a good place to start. I, I would no, much no, rather see just, them um, if uh, you know you know CI and then. You're seeing people trying to discredit it, that you can use that and realize that they're full of it, basically. Well, well, that's true, but but I'd rather see them move on to the Bible basics from here. That's my opinion. I'm yeah, yeah. I mean. Bible basics. Uh, uh, funny enough, I get a few emails every day and I always reply that Bible basics is a good place and then the Gospels or Acts and then, you know, go from there through all the prophets and all that to gain an understanding of the Bible. Well, that might send them on a 10-year trek. It, it, yeah. it took me 10 years to do all that stuff. <clears throat> so that might be a little much for them. But no, no Bible basics and, and maybe then the Weissman series so that they could hear the arguments. That that would be fine. But yeah. I, I think Bible, it, you need a foundation in, in, in um, what we believe as two seed line identity Christians of the Christogenia variety, right? Yet you need a foundation in that before you can really understand, I think, a lot of the arguments in in the Weissman series. That's my opinion. But this is a good place to start, these 100 proofs, once we get through the next 76 of them or whatever, <laughs> 75 <Yeah>. of them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, praise Yahweh. All right. Yeah, praise Yahweh. Thanks, Henry Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of the, well, Israel, the European race. And thanks, Henry. Cheers, Bill. Yahweh bless. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh bless.